hope you had a great Fourth um, of July week, weekend. Maybe you got some time off. You got some time to rest. Uh, let's just take a second and say thanks to our band, our worship team for leading us today. I'm grateful for a God who's holy, who's different right from us. And um, if you enjoyed this morning, uh, maybe you would enjoy also coming back tonight. We have a night of worship. All five of our campuses are getting together tonight at six o'clock. Child care um, is provided. So we would love for you to come and join us again this evening as we spend time worshiping together uh, and praying together. Uh, if today is your first day, my name is uh, Dean. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're thrilled you've taken the opportunity uh, to be with us today. We are in a series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes called Under the Sun. And just trying to give you a preview, uh, maybe of the next few weeks uh, into the fall where we're going. So next week, Solomon is going to talk to us from Ecclesiastes about dealing with pleasure um, in our lives and how those things, the realities around that work uh, their way out in our lives. Then later on in the month, we're going to talk about uh, Solomon talks about God and government and how our faith comes together uh, and those kinds of things. Coming after that, we'll talk about Christianity and the issues that come uh, with aging. And then that'll end this series and we'll jump into our uh, beginning of fall, late summer, beginning of fall series. It's been about 17 years since we've gone through the book of Revelation together. So this fall, we're going to kick that off in the New Testament. We'll go through Revelation together. So nothing uh, nothing difficult or controversial coming up uh, here at all. I like um, the reason that we are looking at Ecclesiastes is because Solomon just has some unique encouragement, right? Solomon is the one guy who can say, like, I'm smarter than you, I'm wiser than you, I have more power than you, more influence than you, I have more pleasure than you, more wealth than you, and all of that he says to us, it's all meaningless. It's empty as long as it is lived under the sun. So that's not meant to be discouraging, although we find it that way whenever we read the book a lot. We're man, like, this book, like, it's just uh, nothing means anything. But what he's really doing, it's encouragement to not live under the sun. The encouragement to us is live connected above the sun, to live connected to eternal realities and not just try and live life out here uh, based on our own resources, disconnected from God and from who he is. Uh, we had a young couple uh, this week, young husband and wife, only been married a few years, and uh, he had had a medical procedure done. And uh, because of that, uh, he developed acute pancreatitis. So I heard about it and just wanted to reach out to them. So I sent him a text. I said, hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Um, and I'm praying specifically Psalm 103, 1 through 5. Those are verses that have meant a lot to me over the last six to eight months. It talks about how God forgives all of our sins. He heals all of our diseases, and I thought maybe that would be encouraging to them. So about 30 minutes later, they shot me a text back. Uh, Abby did, the wife. And she said, hey, thanks. We just read through Psalm 130, 1 through 5. And I was like, wait, not Psalm 130, Psalm 103. That's what I, but then I looked back at my text and my fat thumbs transposed the three and the zero. And you probably don't know this, but Psalm 130 says something very different than Psalm 103. The basis of Psalm 103 is if you are full of sin, then who can stand, right? So there's nothing like having acute pancreatitis sitting in the waiting room of a hospital and your pastor texting you saying, hey, if you're full of sin, that's probably why you've got this disease. So like you could just, so when she texted back, I was like, no, 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 103, 103, that's what I, that's what I... she's like, well, we were wondering, you know, we were, we read that. So all of that to say, Solomon is meaning encouragement 
not discouragement, right? And the theme of what we've been looking at as we've been looking at Ecclesiastes is that, um, is that Solomon is encouraging we can, we can live a full life in an empty world. Even though there's a lot of things and places and people in reality that are disconnected, right, from God, but we look, they're lived under the sun, we can live a full life um, in an empty world. So as we look at these realities today, what we're going to talk about is um, this idea of, of heavy lifting, this idea about where we try to produce um, our own sense uh, of righteousness. So once again, if you're here today, you're in the room, you're watching online, we're grateful that you're with us, and we'll jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Um, first six verses are a, are a poem, and I'll just read one verse to kind of summarize the poem uh, for us in uh, the beginning of verse it says this, that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. It's better to go to a house of mourning than a house uh, of feasting. What Solomon says to us here is that, uh, maybe say it this way, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a fun house. He's saying that it's better to go to a funeral than to be entertained. And it doesn't matter whether you're here today and you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Um, I think we realize the reality. There's agreement that um, we live in a world where you can easily be entertained to death. We can entertain ourselves this way and that way and this way and that way. And Solomon, I don't think he would say, unless it's wrong to take a vacation or it's wrong. That's not his point. But his point is that there's something unique about death. There's something unique about going to a funeral that helps you focus on what really matters in the world, what really matters in life, and what really matters to your legacy. And if all we do is entertain ourselves to death, what's gonna happen is that we're gonna begin to take God for granted. We're gonna begin to think that the things we have are the things not that God has kindly given to us, but those are the things that God owes us. I heard Billy Graham uh, say one time, um, he said, you know, there are over 400,000 flights around the world that take off and land every day, and no one ever says at the end of the day, God, thank you for all of the flights that successfully have taken off and landed. But he said, you let one plane go down, and immediately God gets, God gets all of the blame for that. Why is that? That's because we develop an attitude over time that God is the one who owes us a certain kind of life. And so he's saying in the beginning of chapter seven that we have to fight that. And he's not just gonna say fight, he's gonna actually give us the remedy. And he'll, we'll start looking at that in verse 15. Uh, he says this, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Now look, I, I'm, I'm from Southern Ohio, I don't know a lot, but are those even words? Over-righteousness, over-wise, not to, not to mention the fact that I don't know that any, of, any other place in Scripture would call us to something like that. He says, why destroy yourself? And do not be over-wicked, do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Solomon says, now listen, I want you, you should be righteous, but don't be too righteous. Don't, don't be overly wise but don't be overly wicked. So what's he, what's he calling us to some kind of middle of the road, mediocre kind of belief system? I don't think that's what he means at all. I do think what he is saying is that there's a kind of righteousness that can very easily become self-righteousness. 
I think that's what he explains um, in the next verse, in verse 18. He says, it is good to grasp one and not let go of the other. And listen to this, listen, just listen to this phrase. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Man, what a good word for our culture, right? We live in a culture of extremes. We live in a culture where we broad brush, if, we, if you find something out about somebody, well, they believe this, well, then we automatically categorize them, right? Well, then they must believe this and this and this and this and this, right? Or we find something out maybe about a character in history and they say, well, if they were a this, they must have been a this and a this and a this and a this. And we just categorize people. Why do we do that? Because it's human nature, human nature, to compare ourselves to each other. Why do we compare ourselves to each other? We compare ourselves because out of comparison, then we develop a sense of our own righteousness. What makes us better than everybody else? We compare ourselves to others in three different ways, or at least three different ways. We have upward comparisons, we have lateral comparisons, and we have downward comparisons, right? We compare ourselves upwardly. Typically, we compare ourselves in an upward way to people um, uh, financially, right? And we, um, we start to, well, if I just had what they had, if I had the resources that they had, an absence of, um, of upward comparison, we can easily be, uh, develop a sense of self-pity, right? Because we don't have what somebody else has. Laterally, we tend to compare ourselves, not necessarily financially, but competitively, right? We look at what somebody else is doing, what somebody else who's kind of in our place and space, and, and we've got to hurry, right? That's what it develops, hurry in our life, because we've got to get ahead of the people laterally. But we compare ourselves downwardly to people, and this is unique. We compare ourselves downwardly to people morally, We'll say things like, well, you know, I'm not perfect. I mean, I make mistakes, but I'm no da 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 And it gets really bad. Well, I'm no Hitler, right? Like, I'm better, I'm better than that. And what we tend to do is we tend to put other people down, right? Because it helps us do what? It helps us build ourselves up. And so we develop this sense of self-righteousness because we're better than, somebody develops this kind of better than attitude and out of comparison, and it's, it's all, it's just, it's all over the place. It's ubiquitous in our culture, right? Um, Time has the 100 most influential people they put out every year. Fifth, uh, people has the 50 most beautiful people they put out. Every year, we just constantly compare ourselves because it helps us feel better about ourselves when we can put others down, right? And then compare ourselves up. It develops that, that sense of justification. And, and so, so Solomon is saying, there's a wrongness about your righteousness. That's what he's trying to push us towards. And he picks it back up. Look at, um, look at verse 19. He says this, wisdom makes one person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. It's what we're looking for. We're looking for the one ultimately wise person, the one who can help us navigate and heal our hearts. He says, listen, one righteous person is, is better than 10 kings, 10, 10 rulers. That's what you're looking for. 
Um, I don't know if you saw this article um, in the dispatch about a month ago or so. If you want to go back, it's dated, I think June 8th. There's an article dated in the dispatch that there's a virologist in Missouri who's been studying like the long-term effects of COVID. And this virologist has been studying wastewater because all of a sudden he thinks that there is one person There's one person who has successfully fought off COVID somewhere for two years in a row. And he believes if we could tap into that guy, tap into that guy's immune system, then what we could do is we could absolutely annihilate the virus worldwide. And here's what he's found. He's found that that guy works in Columbus, Ohio. Could be in this room right now. So he, he works in Columbus, Ohio. that's all we know about. He works in Columbus, Ohio. We know he's got this mega immune system, but that he probably lives in Washington Courthouse. Like they've narrowed it down to Washington Courthouse. So down in Southern Ohio, he probably lives down there and he can kind of give us a description of the guy, even though they can't find him. So here's what he says. He says, we're looking for a guy who lives down there in, uh, in Washington, of course, probably middle-aged guy, probably got GI issues. And I just thought you're telling me you're looking for a middle aged guy from Southern Ohio who has GI issues. Good luck with that, right? Good luck finding that guy, right? But there's, there's, this, there's this guy out there, right, that we're, that we're looking at. And, and I'll say the other thing that, you know, I did think is that annihilating the coronavirus worldwide all comes down to Southern Ohio, baby. It's the hope of the world right down there. My people, right? We're going to be the ones. Ultimately, what Solomon says here is that we're looking for the one person who is the one that we, that we can ultimately look to, the one wise person that can help us navigate our own rightness, our own righteousness. And what he's going to push us towards is this idea that the best qualities in our lives are God-produced, not you-produced, not me. God keeps score differently then you and I keep score. Our scoreboard, upward, downward, lateral, all those kinds of things, how fast paced, how much you can move, all those kinds of, God's scoreboard looks very different. Galatians chapter five, here's God's scoreboard. Love, joy, peace, patience. If you wanna know about your righteousness, how's your patience score? Let's just move on. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 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 and self-control. That's God's scoreboard for us because those are spirit-produced qualities. There's a righteousness that comes from God that we cannot produce on our own. So we have to lean into what for God, for him to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. So how do you know if you're there? I mean, we've got the scoreboard, but how do you know how you're doing? Solomon gives us a test right here in the next verse in Ecclesiastes. Pick it back up in verse 21. He says this, do not take to heart all of the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you, you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested wisdom and said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Solomon says to you and me that we can learn a lot from where we get our sense of righteousness from 
by how you act and react when your servant curses you. So in other words, how do you do when somebody criticizes you? How do you do when somebody hurts you? How do you do when somebody wounds you? In other words, I think Solomon is saying forgiveness becomes a test of your righteousness. If you want to know how you're doing, if I want to know how I'm doing, and this is not a good test for me because I fail it a lot. I don't know about you, but I tend to fail this exam uh, a lot. He says, how do you do forgiving people? Are you the kind of person who tends to hold on to things? Are you the kind of person who tends to do what we sang about earlier and kind of live in in freedom, kind of what you heard Zach say this morning about those verses. We all come in here with weight, and a lot of times the weight that we walk in with is this this burden that we carry of unforgiveness. I don't know, probably it's probably been 10 years or so um, ago now. Uh, the life group that Angie and I were in, we were doing a DVD study, and Chip Ingram, who then was the president of Walk Through the Bible Ministries, he was leading the study, and one night it was on forgiveness, and it's super helpful to me. He said there are three stages to forgiveness, and three, three simple steps. He said number one is forgive, and you're like, well, that doesn't seem all that revolutionary, but hang with me here for just a second. He says the first one is forgive, and what he meant by that is you forgive regardless of how you feel. Forgive regardless of how you feel. Because forgiveness, right, allows you to let go of the rock. Forgiveness allows you to let go of the rock. Regardless of how you feel, you take the step to offer forgiveness. Then step number two is forgiving, right? It's a process that happens over time, as your emotions begin to recede a little bit, the anger begins to dwindle a little bit. And then step number three is forgive in. So forgive, forgiving, forgive in. And forgive in is when you start to sense your emotion and your feelings starting to change over time. And maybe you actually begin to hope the best for the person. Maybe the first thing, the first thing that comes to mind, the first thing that comes to heart whenever you see that person or whenever you hear um, of that person is not what the offense was, but rather you are beginning to allow yourself to live in freedom. Unforgiveness is like a weight and we carry it because unforgiveness develops bitterness and bitterness doesn't hurt the person who offends you. Bitterness, right? It, it hurts you, it's like picking up a weight. It's like picking up a, a, a rock. We have other words for it, better words than bitterness, right? Words like, it's a grudge. You ever notice we talk about grudges like we talk about babies, right? You can carry a grudge, you can bear a grudge, you can nurse a grudge, you can hold a grudge. Like we, we make it so much nicer, right, than it really is when it's bitterness and it's eating you up and it's eating me up. And so what do you do? As difficult as it is, you and I learn, we have to learn to forgive. We have to learn to live open-handed. How do we, how do, we do? There's a great example of, um, of how this works against us in the Old Testament, um, all the way back at the beginning uh, of Genesis, in Genesis chapter four. It's about a guy named Lamech, and it says this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. 
If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So here's this guy, Lamech, right? Somebody wounds him, somebody offends him, somebody, somebody hurts him. And so what he does is he develops this response. Uh, evidently, Lamech is the, the guy, as much as we know, who introduced polygamy into the world. He had two wives, Ada and Zillah. And he says to Ada and Zillah, listen, here's what happened. I have murdered a man for hurting me, for wounding me, for, and that's his response. So the Lamech line is what? You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. You come at me, I'm, I'm coming right back at you. And here's what he says. He says, if the revenge, if the wrath of God against Cain was sevenfold, I welcome it 11 times. He said, I welcome it 77 times. And the idea there is that God gave Cain this, this protection. After Cain murders Abel, God knows that people are going to be out to get Cain. They're going to want to take from Cain. <clears throat> so God says, there'll be a sevenfold wrath on anyone who takes this out on Cain. Lamech says, if, if God could pour out that kind of anger, I'll take it 77 times. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to hold on to my anger. I'm going to hold on to my bitterness. Why? Because it's producing in him an angry, prideful, self-produced righteousness. This is the way he justifies his existence. That's what bitterness, that's what bitterness does to us. So then you swing from, from Lamech, the Lamech line, you hurt me, I'll hurt you. You swing from there all the way over to the New Testament. And there's a moment when Simon Peter comes to Jesus about this same subject. And Simon Peter knows like he can't hold on to the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? He can't hold on to that. So he comes to Jesus and it's much more palatable. He says, Jesus, if, if somebody offends me, if somebody hurts me, if somebody wounds me, how often do I have to forgive them? Seven times? Now, why would he say that? Because seven is the number of completion, right? So it sounds really wise. It sounds really, really smart for him to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, it would seem as though seven times would be enough for someone to offend me. Is that right? And if you've read the Gospels very much, you, this very memorable response of Jesus, where he says, uh, you know, Simon, I'm, I'm going to tell you 70. And I, I don't Again, no criticism here, no bashing of the King James translators, but actually what the text says is not 70 times seven, but it actually says 70 and seven. So Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to tell you, Simon, 77 times. So it's interesting that Jesus chooses that number, 77. It's almost like Jesus is undoing the Lamech code all the way back from Genesis, right? That, that 77-fold, he said, Simon, I'm going to tell you 77 times. You forgive. And you and I hear that. And we're like, I don't have the resource for that. That's exactly Jesus's point. So you and I forgive, step one, we forgive 
not based on our own resource, not based on our own righteousness, but based on a righteousness that's being produced in us. The book of Titus in the New Testament, not by works of righteousness, which I have done, but what? Works of righteousness, which Christ has done. That's what saves us. It's not what you can produce or what, or what I can produce. There are two great reasons, two great reasons that we dump, right? That we, we dump the weight, we let go of the rock. Number one is that God says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God is a much better arbiter of justice than you and I are. Because he knows everything and it will be complete and it will be full. And when people don't repent in this world, people don't make amends in this world, there's a world to come and God will mete out justice in a perfect righteous way. So what? So we can let go of it. So we can put the offense or offenses in God's hands and we don't have to hold on to, they don't have to eat away at us. You're like, well, that, what, what if I don't get to see it where they pay for it? That's the second reason. Because when Jesus left heaven and came to earth and he died on a cross, basically what he's doing is he's taking the offenses, the sins of mankind, the weights of, and that includes you, right? That includes me. Just, just to go back to the text, verse 22, your heart knows that many times you have cursed others, right? Verse 20, what did Solomon say? Um, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who never sins. So all of us not only have been hurt, but we have hurt other people. And regardless of the comparison of, of the offenses, Christ in his kindness came and he took your offenses and he took mine. And he paid for them on the cross. Now that's just not an application for when we come to know Christ, when we when we're saved, but it's an application for our growth in Christ. Still today, our sanctification, as we grow and mature in him, as people offend us, we are reminded that true right forgiveness is rooted in the righteousness of Christ, not by works of righteousness, which I have done, not because I compare myself to you because I'm up here and you're down there because I'm a better person than you are, but rather it's because Jesus is the one. He is the one wise, righteous man that we are all looking for. He's the one that we are all looking to. He is the ultimate remedy for salvation and not just salvation, but for healing, the healing of our souls, the ability to let go the ability to say to God, God, I'm, I'm fully available. We've been singing that song around here for about, uh, for about six weeks. And the line, you can have it all, you can have it all, it rolls down towards the end of that song. And there's this little line right at the end <clears throat> where it says, have your, um, have your throne inside my so regardless of what others have done, regardless of even what you have done, Christ has saved you and he's called you. And so it's up then to you and I 
on a regular basis to give him the place that only he deserves, the throne inside of our lives because he is the one that we are all looking for. He is the, he is the patient zero. He is the one who brings healing. He is the one who offers us a full life in an empty world. Let's pray together. God, we pray <clears throat> this morning that you would have your throne inside of our hearts. That we, um, that we hear, God, you call. We hear your word. We've heard it. We've talked about it. We discussed it this morning. And now, God, we say that by the power, by the presence of your, uh, of your spirit, we're going to do whatever we can do, humanly speaking, to make ourselves available to you because we've heard this call. Because God, we can't be good enough. We can't be righteous enough. Because we can't fix, we can't heal, we can't remedy. So God, we lean into a righteousness that you produce. We lean into the qualities that you produce, not our own wisdom, but yours. Not I, but Christ. God, we ask that you would fill us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.